best thing that can happen is for the governor to actually engage in election code changes so we can actually get this done. Pennsylvania House Republicans want to make sweeping changes to the state's election laws. York County Republican Seth Grove is leading the charge and wants to see changes this month. We may have to move off election issues if this doesn't get signed now. The fall is too close to the fall election for counties to get these changes in. We'll also look at where state Democrats and Republicans found common ground this week. Members of both parties expressed concern about a plan to outsource Medicaid services for senior citizens to a for-profit company. Plus, a new analysis finds that one of UPMC's hospitals has some of the most inflated costs for care in the country. It's Friday, June 18th, and this is Pittsburgh Explainer. I'm your host, Liz Reed. First up, Capitol Bureau Chief Sam Dunklaw is here to talk about Republican efforts to change the state's voting laws. Hi, Sam. Hey, Liz. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining the show. Pennsylvania Republicans just expanded the state's voting law in 2019. What are the changes they want to make now? So uh, in short, Liz, I think the changes can be summed up this way. You know, I don't think that this proposal is as bad as some folks might want to make it out to be. There's a lot of good stuff in here. But at the same time, this bill is not as clean as county election directors and other people who would benefit from it would like it to be. So uh, in short, after a huge months-long process in which House Republicans and, and the House in general brought forward all these different election stakeholders, some of the recommendations that they made were uh, to increase the amount of time that counties are able to process that is open and sort mail-in ballots before an election to make uh, the deadline for applying for a mail-in ballot a little bit earlier so that counties have enough time to turn it around. Republican Seth Grova, who is sponsoring this bill, is also going to ensure that more money is sent for poll worker salaries. That was a big uh, complaint in the 2020 election. Poll workers had to do all this extra work but weren't being paid very well. So county election directors have gotten sort of what they've wanted in this bill. Uh, But the controversial part of this is that, you know, it would usher in some changes that voter advocacy groups like the Committee of 70 and uh, the League of Women Voters say don't really address actual problems. The big one is mail-in voters would have to produce two forms of identification instead of one in order to apply for their ballot. And ballot drop boxes would be limited to one for every 100,000 county residents. So you could see where that would be difficult in some rural places. And, and that is sort of the driving controversy right now about this bill. So we've got a lot of good things that I think you've got bipartisan support from from lawmakers and from advocates, but these couple of things about election security that are still dividing folks. A common Republican argument about the state's election law is that any changes should have been approved by voters in a constitutional amendment, not a state law that only lawmakers vote on. But isn't that what would happen here? It's what's happening in large part. But the interesting thing about that, Liz, is that there there is a constitutional amendment actually that just got proposed to have voters weigh in on these more controversial voter ID provisions. Uh, the argument that GOP folks uh, have been making is that anytime you go into a drugstore to buy cold medicine, you have to show ID, but not necessarily every time you have to cast a ballot. So the argument that they make in proposing two companion pieces of legislation that would serve as a constitutional amendment is we're going to ask voters to decide on whether or not identification should be required each time a ballot is cast. And the reason they're doing that is to get around an expected veto by Governor Wolf, who has repeatedly said he is not in favor of expanding uh, voter ID provisions. 
Uh, and the, the interesting history about constitutional amendments is that they're very often not struck down by voters. Voters more often than not approve those provisions. So the earliest voters would get to weigh in on that particular constitutional amendment would be 2023. So nothing immediate is going to happen. So right now, the real fight on voting changes comes down to what the legislature is going to decide. You touched on this just a bit, but how is Governor Wolf responding to these proposals? Uh, Pretty aggressively, Liz. Um, In the past couple of weeks, and in fact, even this week, Governor Wolf is coming out and saying uh, this is a bad piece of legislation. It would create barriers to voting. Um, And he points out a couple of specific things that Democrats and others have have problems with, uh, that voters would have less time to register to vote. Uh, and apply for a mail-in ballot, even though that's what counties requested for what it's worth, and would be subjected to uh, signature verification on their mail-in ballots uh, and voter ID at polling places. And he also points out that uh, the legislation would limit the use of drop boxes and the number of people would have to staff them and things like that. So in all, he says, this bill is not about improving access to voting or election security, but about trying to control voting for the majority's own political gain. And so in making comments like that, he's hinted, if this bill is passed by the Republican majority state legislature, there is a pretty high chance that he would veto it because it contains these voter ID provisions and limits on drop boxes that he's just not in favor of. What's the likelihood of this passing? Um, not entirely likely that this bill in its current form would be approved, at least by the governor. So the Republican majority in the state legislature, of course, they control both chambers. So there is some very good likelihood that this bill uh, would get through both of those chambers and end up on Governor Wolf's desk. Uh, But right now, there there is some willingness to compromise. Uh, You know, House sponsor Seth Grove even said this week, He's open to compromise, didn't mention what specific points he and others are willing to compromise on, but that he's willing and ready to have an open discussion with the governor's office so that a voting change bill can come before him and it can get signed and have plenty of time to take effect for the election that's coming up in November. But the Republicans are also putting a time stamp on all of this. If this doesn't get done by the end of the month, which... You know, there's a lot of other stuff going on, the state budget for one. It's unlikely that state lawmakers would have enough time to make these changes and they don't want to rush anything along in the fall time. So it's unlikely in its current form, but we'll see what happens uh, negotiation wise. Now, I understand there was also some polling of the public that came out this week on these issues. Where does the public fall on the question of this voting package? So this was a pretty prescient poll that uh, came out from Franklin and Marshall College, uh, and they asked folks uh, to weigh in on whether or not election laws need to be changed in the Commonwealth and whether or not they support certain provisions that are included in this law. So in all, more than 400 people were surveyed across the political spectrum, and a majority of them, 59%, said that the state's election laws do need some revision. Now, a majority of voters favor some of the more controversial parts of this bill. 81% said uh, that they favor signature matching on mail-in ballots, which was a big point of contention in the 2020 election, and photo ID requirements for mail-in ballots. 74% said that they would be in favor of something like that. So you can see why a constitutional amendment coming out of either the Senate or House in the next couple of years would be a pretty attractive option for state lawmakers. Getting this in front of voters because they've indicated overwhelming support for them would be a way to get those provisions passed and approved outside of 
the governor's veto pen, whether that be another Democrat after 2022. Sam, thanks for your reporting. Thanks for having me, Liz. We'll be right back with more after a quick break. Reimagination, WYEP's teen recording project that rocks, is back for its eighth year. Reimagination offers student musicians a chance to get in the studio and record their original songs with a professional producer. You can hear all 13 tracks from the 2021 project and learn more about reimagination at wyep.org slash reimagination 2021. An analysis of hospital data published this week found that UPMC Presby in Pittsburgh has some of the most inflated costs for care in the country. WESA's Sarah Bowden looked into the issue and is here to talk about what's going on. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Liz. So what was this study and and where did UPMC show up in it? Yeah, this analysis was performed by Johns Hopkins University in Axios, and they looked at a lot of different metrics, but the one that I zeroed in on was uh, the markup of uh, healthcare costs, which would be um, uh, how much it costs the hospital to provide that care versus how much that hospital charges. And UPMC Presbyterian, which is UPMC's flagship hospital, ranked really high on the list. It came in sixth overall and first among nonprofits. But, you know, when you start to kind of look at the data, you you realize that, at least for me you know, and some other folks, you know, you get more questions than answers. You spoke to a couple of economists about what's going on here. What did they say? Well, they said that uh, they made the point that what, you know, a the maximum price of a healthcare procedure is that a hospital may potentially charge is rarely what's what gets billed. Um, one of the economists I spoke to, his name is Chris Whaley, he's with the Rand Corporation. He uh, compared it to shopping for a vehicle. When you go to a used car lot, you'll see a bunch of cars and they'll all have sticker prices, but you you know that that's the start of the negotiation. It's the opening volley. Uh, rarely will you pay what uh, is listed for that car. And, you know, the same is can be true for healthcare. Uh, It is also a negotiation, but that negotiation takes place between the medical provider and the insurance company. But it's the same. It's an opening volley. So UPMC has this exorbitant price for a pacemaker or a thumb splint. But rarely, like, is that what either the consumer or the insurance company pays? One of the experts you talked to pointed out that UPMC is unique in that it runs both healthcare and insurance companies. How could that impact prices? Yeah, that's a great question. So instead of having this negotiation between the health insurer and the medical provider, UPMC is both because it's something what is known as an integrated healthcare corporation um, or an integrated healthcare system. Uh, so it has an insurance arm, a medical provider arm, and also in UPMC's case, uh, it has uh, a research arm, but we don't really care about that for this story. But really, the important thing is that the insurer and the medical provider uh, can kind of work in tandem uh, to create a sort of competitive market strategy that uh, gets people 
uh, to sign up for UPMC insurance. Elise, this is what The Economist told me they think is probably happening. UPMC has not said, oh yeah, our really high prices at Presby are part of a competitive market strategy to squeeze out Highmark, which is also part of an integrated healthcare system and is UPMC's number one rival. Um, but they think that that's what's happening, uh, that when you have two entities that traditionally are uh, not uh, on the same side, but with UPMC's case are on the same side, they're able to implement uh, a strategy that can push out competitors. Okay. All right. This is really interesting. So if I'm following you, what you're saying is that UPMC can can put a really high sticker price on a procedure, but then say our insurance will cover 90% of it. So you should sign up for UPMC insurance because look what a great deal you're getting as opposed to Highmark insurance will cover 70% or something. It, it, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Like the percentages, um, you know, those percentages, I think you're just kind of pulling them out of the air. Um, yes. Yes. Those yeah. are not real. <laughs> right. But yeah, that's, but they're yeah. saying like that's the what, discount is deeper. The discount is deeper if you, if you come with us. Yes. That's what the economists are saying. Yeah, and you know, UPMC is not only uh, the network's flagship hospital, it's also its academic hub, some really kind of, if you need a more specialized medical procedure, there's a good chance that you'll go to UPMC Presby. Uh, so, you know, that's a that's a big draw for folks. Um, back when UPMC and Highmark were going through that huge sort of legal fight slash divorce in 2019, one of the main concerns was uh, the Hillman Cancer Center, which is part of Shadyside Hospital, which is also UPMC Hospital. And there was concern. It was just like, you know, why can't people have access to the Hillman Cancer Center? You know, you're a specialty facility. You're the best in the region. Why don't we have access to that? So, um, you know, UPMC will leverage its world-class medical treatment to encourage people to sign up with its insurance. So what did UPMC have to say about its high prices at Presby? UPMC essentially said that, you know, these high prices are not ultimately what people will pay in most cases, and that people who are uninsured uh, get financial assistance. And also that they said that they didn't recognize the data used by the analysis, um, what recognize means, maybe whether it's they don't acknowledge it or they're not familiar with it. That was not clear to me in their wording. But basically, they're like, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't represent what the patient experiences. And I think that they're probably right about that. And that's not to say that patients are not harmed by this competitive pricing sometimes. You know, maybe uninsured people... Uh, get some assistance, but who knows how much assistance that is. Underinsured people are also very vulnerable. Um, you know, it's, but at the same time, when you have this extreme competition, sometimes that can actually lower prices overall in a healthcare marketplace, which is what one of the economists I spoke to told me. So it's um, these high prices at UPMC Presby are really indicative of a very complex dynamic system. Sarah, thanks for your reporting. Thanks, Liz. We'll be back with one more story after another quick break. Why does it get hot during the summer? What are clouds made of? Do we sneeze in our sleep? If you have a curious kid who likes to stump you with queries, let the Confluence answer the questions for you. 
WESA is looking for any and all questions from the kiddos in your life, from the bugs crawling on the sidewalk to the stars in our galaxy. There's no question too big or too small. Send your questions to confluence at wesa.fm. Both Democratic and Republican state legislators found something to agree on this week. Members of both parties are concerned about a state plan to switch some Medicaid services to a for-profit company. WESA's Kate Giamarisi is here to talk about it. Hi, Kate. Hi, Liz. First of all, what services are we talking about here? So what is at issue here is when senior citizens are in need of services and care to remain in their homes and they are applying for Medicaid-funded assistance, the assessment for that assistance has always been handled by local area agencies on aging. They perform a clinical assessment and a financial assessment uh, in order for seniors to get this help. So who would this, this would impact homebound seniors or who exactly are we talking about here? Well, it's senior citizens who need a level of care that's basically a nursing home level of care, but that they're hoping to remain in their homes. And that's the assistance they're applying for. I see. So what company does the state plan to outsource these tasks to? and, And why does that concern lawmakers? So the company is named Maximus. It's a very large international human services company, a for-profit company, and it does handle some similar work already for the state. In 2016, when Maximus took over the enrollment portion of this service, there was a lot of criticism of how they were handling it. There were legislative hearings. State legislators complained about being inundated with calls from people who couldn't get services. There was a lot of advocates speaking out about this at the time. And I think that this experience is why there's some pushback now. And what does the state say in response to this? Well, so because of this is is not exactly a done deal yet, the State Department of Human Services has said they're pretty limited in what exactly they can say. That What they will say is that Maximus was the highest scoring applicant and they were selected to begin contract negotiations. They can also say that the AAAs, the area agencies on aging, have filed sort of like a protest, which sort of puts a pause um, on some things. I mean, the state did say a final agreement has not been signed. So that's where we are now. Kate, thanks for your reporting. Thank you so much, Liz, and I will definitely uh, continue to be paying attention to this story. Finally, today, I have some news of my own to share with you. This is my last episode of Pittsburgh Explainer and my last week at WESA. I'm leaving to focus on family and personal projects, but you may still hear me on the air from time to time. For now, Explainer is going on a break. That means we won't be in your podcast feeds this summer. If you're looking for something to listen to, check out WESA's podcast, Land and Power, a five-part series digging into the issue of affordable housing in Pittsburgh. And subscribe to The Confluence, our local daily news magazine. Both are available wherever you get your podcasts. This week's show was produced by our super intern, Susan Scott Peterson, with help from Katie Blackley. Katie has been our steadfast producer for almost all of our six dozen episodes. Our editor is Lucy Perkins, one of the most talented radio journalists I've had the pleasure of working with in my decade in the business. 
thanks, as always, so much for listening. We won't talk next week, but we will talk soon.